The word that gave a son to Sarah when she was beyond childbearing age has made a people who were once not your people to now hear your voice and to love and obey you, testifying to the world that you have indeed brought the dead to life by your word. You have promised that the truth will set us free, and so it has. It has set the saints in Sutherland Springs free to testify to a watching world of your faithfulness and provision in the midst of their unspeakable suffering. Be merciful, O Father of all comfort, to them as they bury their loved ones and recover in the days ahead. Is anything too hard for you, O God? We pray, Father, for those who are suffering the pains and trials of this fallen world. We pray for Brad Brad Booth, who has exhausted all medical options to treat his cancer. Be merciful to him and his family in the coming days as you lead him across the river from this world to the next. We ask for your mercies for LaVisa's mom, Rena Alvarez, who is battling heart trouble. Give the doctors wisdom and ways to give her relief. We also ask, Father, for grace, mercy, and healing for Christine Hauser, who is suffering with aggressive cancer and difficult treatments. We thank you for Susanna Ketchen's continued recovery from back surgery and pray that she will continue to make improvements through physical therapy. For these and others who are in our hearts and minds, Father, we ask for mercy and healing. Is anything too hard for you, O God? We also lift up, Father, those who have suffered deaths in their family, the DeCurligans and Price families, and also the families of Brian Davis and Maria Diaz. Uphold them by your Spirit and strengthen them. Is anything too hard for you, O God? We pray, Father, for our churches as we gather for Presbytery and Council meetings this week. Give them all safety traveling and wisdom as we conduct the business of your church. We thank you also, Father, for watching over our expectant mothers, LaVisa and Sarah, and pray that you will continue to give them strength as their due dates approach. We thank you, Father, for those who have served in the armed forces. They have preferred others over themselves and given themselves in service of their neighbor. Continue to watch over those who have volunteered on behalf of our country, those who are close at home and those overseas. We pray, Almighty God, that you will sustain and protect our brothers and sisters who face uncertainty and threats and persecution, even death for the sake of Jesus, those near and far away. We ask for wisdom for our leaders in authority over us, President Trump and his administration, our senators and representatives in Congress, the justices on the Supreme Court, our state and local officials. Empower them by your spirit to serve faithfully in their respective offices in such a way to let us live and worship in peace and to use their influence where they are able to alleviate the suffering of your people throughout the world. Is anything too hard for you, O God? For our friends in Russia and Uzbekistan, we pray, Pastors Volkov, Kunikayev, and Redon, as they faithfully minister your word there. We pray that you will bless other ministries we support in Japan, Peru, Central African Republic, and elsewhere. Increase the opportunities and support for local ministries we support, including Heartbeat Pregnancy Center, Love, Inc., Glory Gang, and Godtail. Help them and us to be a light in a dark world. Is anything too hard for you, O God? We know, Father, that nothing is too hard for you. And we pray now that as we turn our hearts and ears toward your word, that you would speak faithful words to us. Wound us, teach us, and heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand now for the reading of God's word from 1 Samuel 25. We'll read through verse 13 now and more later as we look at this passage. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. 
Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you, Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for as we come, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about four hundred men went with David, and two hundred stayed with the supplies. Thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We live in a world, as you well know, that gives honor to scoundrels and fools. If you take in all that the world has to offer, if you take it in with a fire hose, that is the perspective that you get. And you might, you just might think that that's all that there is. Eat, drink, and be merry. Rack up Instagram followers, get lots of life, likes on Facebook, for tomorrow you die. We live in a narcissistic world. Vain, self-loving, self-admiring, self-absorbed, self-obsessed, conceited, self-centered, egotistical, full of oneself. That's the world that we live in. That pretty much describes it. Entertainers, actors, athletes, singers, politicians, those are the ones who get all the press. Those are the ones who make the headlines. Sure, there are good people in all those endeavors, but we really like the bad ones. If it weren't so, we wouldn't put up with it, right? But since you are a royal priesthood, that's kings and priests, we have a higher calling. We are on a journey living our lives as followers of Jesus, as servants to the king. Part of that journey, this life, is maturing as a man and woman and as a Christian. In your growth as a Christian, whether young or old, you have found and you will find yourself in situations that can and will determine the trajectory of your life from then on. David finds himself in just that type of passage today, in our passage today. He's been promised the throne, 
But how will he conduct himself as he transitions to the king of Israel? Will he do something on the way up that will bring him down later? A quick review of where we are in 1 Samuel. Samuel was the one who was asked for by Hannah. He replaced Eli, who had two rebellious sons. But then Samuel had sons who didn't follow in his footsteps. So the people asked for a king. Give us a king like the nations around us, they said. Now Saul was the one asked for, and his name in Hebrew sounds like when you ask for something. Saul started off well, but he didn't listen to Samuel and Yahweh's commands. Finally, Samuel said, you will not hear from me again. The kingdom will be removed from you. Then David was anointed. Man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And we remember the story of David and Goliath. Then David served in the court of Saul for a while, and he married his daughter. Saul was afflicted with a distressing spirit and found that David's skillfulness on the harp soothed him. And then Saul tried to kill David and pursued him. And during this time, David built a following of misfits. In chapter 24 of the previous chapter, David found Saul relieving himself in a cave and cut off the corner of his robe. His kingdom will be removed. Why do you pursue me, Saul? David said. I am but a dog. I am just a flea. But then we come to chapter 25. And Samuel dies. It's clearly the end of an era, though he hadn't been mentioned much in the last few chapters here. Samuel was the most famous of the judges as he presided of the transition from judge to king in the life of Israel. In our passage before us today, we have a description of Nabal. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, almost a third of the livestock that Job had, and he lived in Carmel, which means fruit garden. And Nabal means fool. Was this his given name? We don't know, but his wife calls him this. This is not one of those names or nicknames that mean the opposite of what really is. When I was in junior high at my church growing up, we had a seminary student intern whose name was Mike Biggs. And Mike was notorious for being late to everything. He just couldn't get it together. He was slow and he was always late. So naturally, he earned the name of Speedy, Speedy Biggs. Now, I don't know if that name followed him after he left Hattiesburg, but but to this day, if he walked through those doors, that would be mentioned in his nickname from 25 or 30 years earlier. But Nabal's name was one of those accurate descriptions. He was a fool. And we're also told that he was from the house of Caleb. But his wife was not like him. Abigail was wise and beautiful. Maybe this was one of those opposite attracts marriage, marriages. Or maybe she became wiser after her marriage or, and he became foolish and harsh as time went on and he had his prosperity. Either way, we have a contrast here. Foolish and harsh husband, wise and beautiful wife. Now about this time, David heard that Nabal's men were shearing his sheep in Carmel. David and his men were in the area. Maybe they were hiding out there. And they offered a level of protection from any marauders that might come upon them. And so afterward, David sent ten of his young men to Nabal and told them to greet him in his name and bring him peace. Tell him that my men watched over his shearers and his sheep and protected them while they were shearing their sheep and while they were in that area. You can confirm this with your own men. They will testify to this. We know that there's a big feast going on. Can you give us some food? We're hungry. We've been in the wilderness for quite a while. But Nabal's feasting mood didn't extend to these strangers. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men that I do not know where they are from? David, or Nabal rather, did not believe in showing hospitality to strangers, nor did he believe the promise that he might entertain angels unawares by doing so. He also put on quite an air about him, pretending that he didn't know the famous living legend who they sang songs about. The one who killed their enemy's chief warrior. I'm sorry, I'm afraid, I don't know who the man is that sent you. Not to mention, I can't spare any food for you right now. Excuse me, I have more feasting and partying to do. My men will see you out. Not the way to win friends and influence people. Even if Nabal was looking out for his own interest, he might have thought to help David so that he might be in line for some cushy government contracts when David ascended to the throne. But he was a fool. David's men returned to him and told him that Nabal, what Nabal said. And what was his response? Two arms, David said. Put your swords on. And meanwhile, one of Nabal's men reported to Abigail exactly what had transpired and how David's men were good to him. In verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what we will do, for harm is determined against our master and for all his household, for he is such a scoundrel, and one cannot speak to him. So one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers, and he reviled us, but they were good to us. He is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Nabal's response is going to bring trouble on our head, his servant said. You can't reason to him. He's a scoundrel. He's like a son of Belial. The word is the same used by Hannah defending herself against Eli, you may remember, when she was praying silently. And Eli thought she was drunk. Don't consider me a daughter of Belial, Hannah said. It was also referred to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who stole from the sacrifices and lay with the temple prostitutes. They were true scoundrels, and Nabal follows in their paths. He doesn't listen to anybody. But Abigail knew precisely what to do in response. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belongs to him by morning light. She wasn't exactly surprised by Nabal's actions. Abigail wasn't. She'd certainly seen him act like a blockhead plenty of times before. He had acted like this dozens of times. 
Sometimes Abigail might have simply rolled her eyes. There he goes again. That was his pattern. But this time was serious. Nabal acted like he didn't know who David was. He certainly didn't know David would respond in the way that he did. Because there were feasting, she could get plenty of food ready in a short amount of time and load it up on the donkeys. Think of Jacob dividing up his flocks to go and meet Esau in an attempt to calm his anger. But she did not tell her foolish husband, Nabal. During this time, David had planned revenge because of Nabal's insult and made an oath to kill every male that belonged to him. Interestingly, the word translated male here is really more descriptive. It's more like anyone who urinates against the wall. This phrase, as you might have guessed, is not exactly complimentary. You can imagine David saying, We functioned as a wall around your men protecting them, but all you did was urinate against the wall of protection. We can guess, even with our modern ears, that David is sliding Nabal with this description. But why exactly? One interpretation also is that it implies that Nabal is acting like a dog as a pejorative term for a man. Nabal was from the house of Caleb, which means a dog. And way back when, David and Nabal were related. Caleb came from the tribe of Judah, as did David. But there was no family love lost here. So Abigail went off, went out to head off David. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of Yahweh, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when Yahweh has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So Abigail came upon David and his men at the bottom of a hill, dismounted her donkey, fell on her face, bowing before David, and begged for mercy from him and his men. Notice that one of Abigail's first words is about me. Nabal also spoke about himself, about his property and prosperity. Now Abigail speaks about herself, but it is different. She is taking responsibility for her own foolish husband's actions. She emphasized ownership like Nabal did, but not ownership of all his property. She emphasized ownership of his actions. She acknowledged that she didn't see David's men, and as a result, she wasn't able to save Nabal from himself. But now, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, Yahweh has held you back 
from bloodshed and, and from avenging yourself with your own hand. I couldn't save my husband from his foolish actions, but by God's grace, I will save you from your foolish actions. One of David's chief temptations in chapters 24, 25, and 26 is impatience. Yet we see, as one commentator says, this is the chief qualifications for kingship was the fact that he had resisted these temptations. Now this is a turn in the story, isn't it? If you're like me, as you read along in the story here, we can easily get caught up in David's actions and find ourselves rooting for him to teach this fool a lesson. Nabal is a troublemaker and trouble he's going to have. But then we have Lady Wisdom throwing a wrench in things. It turns out that David is really the one in trouble in this passage. He's in danger of throwing the legitimacy of his kingdom away over an insult. How are you going to rule with that over your head, Abigail says. Your reign would forever be tainted by your unrestrained anger. You would find yourself like Saul, unable to fight on behalf of the Lord. Surely Abigail didn't realize that though she might sway David in this one situation, he would be haunted by future sins that would plague his kingdom and his family when he took multiple wives and when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. We've had one story after another of David going out of his way to avoid Saul's attacks. David had passed up multiple opportunities to take revenge against Saul, and Saul had actually tried to kill David. Previously, David played the harp for Saul to calm him in his fits of rage, yet here David is the one flying off the handle. David is the one who needs a calming musician. Why the change now? In the previous chapter, David questions Saul's pursuit of him as chasing a dead dog. Yet here, David is the one pursuing the dog. Why is this? There are some curious aspects to this story and where it's placed in the book as a whole. For several chapters in 1 Samuel, we've seen the conflict between David and Saul grow one story after another. And chapters 26 following picks up again the conflict between them. But in this interlude, there's a different conflict going on. First, we are told that Samuel died in verse 1. He was not the high priest, but he was the chief religious leader for quite some time. Remember also that Samson was a judge during this time, but he, he doesn't come into the story here. But by law, when the chief priest died, something special happened. The land was cleansed and allowed those in cities of refuge to return to their homeland. David was on a mission to find refuge from the false allegations of Saul and his murderous desires. He finds himself in Carmel, a garden, a vineyard, and ends up inheriting part of the land later through marrying Abigail in the story. There are other patterns that emerge as well. You could say that Nabal is Saul's alter ego. Nabal celebrated like a king in his feasting. In chapter 26, Saul will confess that he is the one who has acted like a fool. There are several parallels also between Nabal's and Saul's treatment of David. David served them both, and they were both ungrateful. Both returned evil for good. Nabal called David son of Jesse, just like Saul had in a way that did not admit to his accomplishments. We also see in this passage some of the effects of Samuel's death. David's conscience had bothered him about cutting the corner of, of his father's robe. In chapter 26, their relationship, David's relationship with Saul, proceeds more like brothers. And with the lack of guidance of his father, the prophet Samuel, David's bright future here was almost short-circuited. So David listened to Abigail and said in verse 32, 
Blessed is Yahweh, God of Israel, who sent you to me this day. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought which she had brought to him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. David has come to realize the part that he has played in this story. He was well on his way to being the villain in this story. He was on the road to slaughter all sorts of innocent men. Over what? Over an insult. He was on his way to kill the enemies of David, not the enemies of God. He did not listen to Pastor Booth's sermon last week on anger from Ephesians chapter 4. This was not righteous anger he was exhibiting. David was the good guy for so long in 1 Samuel, and now he is making a run at being the bad guy, as if Saul needed company in the bad guy department. This was not the David we have been rooting for ever since he killed Goliath. Wisdom, like truth, can come to you in many forms. Are you prepared to accept it? Or are you offended when it comes from someone who you consider to be below you? Someone speaking a wise word or seeing straight to the heart of the matter that you really know shouldn't have been telling you because you know better. Years ago, during a meal at home, when the kids were much younger, we were in the midst of teaching table manners. I, with food in my mouth, corrected one of them for talking with food in their mouth. And that short little toddler who needed a booster seat to reach the table looked at me with confused eyes and replied, Only you? (laughs) How do you respond to that? Do you bow up and tell him, Hush up, respect your daddy. (laughs) Or do you smile, rub that little head of hair and say, You're right, son. Sorry about that. What about that most unlikely source of wisdom and truth, Balaam's ass? If you hear a beast of burden talking to you, here's an idea. Don't talk back. Either you've had too much whiskey on the trail or you need to shut up and listen. Because these are extraordinary circumstances. If an angel of Yahweh is a witness to the faithful words of a donkey, you must really be in bad shape. Balaam's donkey had more spiritual insight than he did. His donkey was given more grace than he was. He could see an angel and that he was about to kill them. The rocks and the trees will cry out in praise to God and animals will receive a sudden gift of speech if you're enough of a fool. And you should thank God for it. If David had not listened to wisdom, he was on his way to being another Nabal, a fool that cannot be reasoned with. If David had followed through with his murderous actions, he would have been that guy who's the example for what not to do. Someone who's a negative example. Proverbs is full of warnings like this, and Pastor Booth talked about this foolishness and wisdom in Sunday school this morning. And just about every chapter in Proverbs, there is a warning against being a fool or acting like a fool or an exhortation to be wise. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for each day. Maybe that's because in this world you will come across fools every day. You will need to exercise wisdom every day. You do not want to be that, exa- that ne- negative example for someone else. You instinctively point this out, don't you, with your kids. I, I hope you do. Don't be like Billy. He only looks out for himself. 
He's not considerate of anybody else. Don't be like Susie who would prefer to gossip behind your back than to talk directly to you. That's a negative example, and they're all around you. You don't have to look far. At school, at work, on your team, in your neighborhood, in the news. Maybe they're a negative example only for a specific situation for a short time. Maybe a bad chapter in an otherwise good book. God was gracious to David and gave him the time and the occasion to repent of this sin. Young men, especially, this is one of your regular temptations. Do not be a fool. Do not act the fool. And don't hang around with guys that do. Listen to wisdom. Wisdom is all around you. We will see later in David's life, in a different situation, that he does end up being that guy. But here, David listens. David listens to Abigail and receives the provisions she brought for his men. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was very merry within, within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. And it happened, after about ten days, that Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. So Abigail returns home to find Nabal feasting like a king and drunk out of his gourd. So much so that he didn't tell, she didn't tell him anything about the errand she took. It wouldn't make any difference anyway at that time. It wasn't until the morning when she told him what had happened, when the wine had gone from him. Peter Lightheart has suggested that the Hebrew construction of this verse implies that she tells him while he's actually urinating. Perhaps God used the irony of it all. David's vow to kill everyone who urinates against the wall while he's demonstrating that he fits that description to cause his heart to die within him so that he became like a stone. And ten days later, Nabal was dead. The writer said it so matter-of-factly, Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. And we start to think this story is going to turn out all right. David is saved from his murderous intentions and God killed Nabal without David having to seek vengeance on his own. And David praised Yahweh for his protection and provision, but then it gets even better. David gets the girl, the beautiful and wise Abigail. He sends his men to her to propose marriage, and she accepted. This really does have all the makings of the first-rate story. Hero lives, villain dies, beautiful woman rescued from a life being married to a scoundrel, and marries the future king. It's a fairy tale ending. If only David can give thanks as the screen fades to dark. Everything would be right in his world. Oh, if the story had only ended right there. Verse 43. David also took a Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. David, what are you doing? Surely you know the prohibition against having multiple wives in Deuteronomy 17. David is in Carmel, the garden land, and he reaches out and takes what was forbidden. The temptation from the beginning of time, taking that which for, was forbidden, still remained. The writer said it almost as matter-of-factly that he did about Nabal's death. There's no commentary about the fact that this was prohibited by the law, but this was a bad sign for David. It's like one of those small clues in the beginning of a story you know is going to come back later with, with much greater ramifications. So David has two wives here, and by the time he's made king over all of Israel, 
He has six sons by six different wives. Is it surprising then that David took another wife later on after he killed her husband? He seemed to be used to getting the woman he wanted. We aren't told, but it does make you wonder if Abigail was as bold confronting David's grievous sins as the years went by as she was in this one instance involving his desire to kill Nabal. Look out. In the joy of victory and deliverance, it's so easy to fall into sin. Things are going well. Then we find ourselves letting our guard down. And the consequences for David here are far-reaching. They will plague him for the rest of his life. His sons will, sadly, follow in his footsteps here. And they will end up with the kingdom being divided and it will plunge in disarray. A wise man knows his vulnerability, but David ignored the clear command of God's word. A wise man knows his temptations and listens to the instructions of his father. Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you know that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, apart from your saving grace. Keep us from vain and foolish thinking and living. Grow us in grace as we move from glory to glory, as you make us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now and sing our praises to our God. Christians, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. 
We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. May be seated. The world around us calls good evil and evil good. It calls light darkness and darkness light. It calls truth lies and lies truth. What a messed up and twisted world that doesn't know God. But what has Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world has set before you a table filled with the pleasures of this world that are fleeting and that lead to the depths of hell. But, but our King has called us to gather at the feast of the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for your sins, You and I are heirs together with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has called us to eat and to fellowship with him today. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us eat together with glad and joyful hearts. Let's pray. We have gathered, Father, in your name to bring your glory, honor, and worship as you alone deserve. And we have worshipped with thankful and grateful hearts. Send us forth now in the power of your spirit to live with thanksgiving and grateful hearts to serve you again this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now receive the benediction from our Father. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.